The International Association for Near-Death Studies presents NDE Radio, a weekly exploration of near-death experiences and similar encounters with the other side. Now, here's your host, Lee Whitting. Welcome to NDE Radio, brought to you by IONS, the International Association for Near-Death Studies. I'm your host, Lee Whitting. Today we are pleased to bring you part four of our interview with Rabbi Stephen Robbins, who has experienced six near deaths. If you haven't listened to parts one, two, and three, you can find it by going to our past shows button and clicking on the shows of April 1st, 8th, and 15th of 2019. In today's show, Rabbi Robbins continues last week's discussion of Adam and Eve, the envy of the snake, and how he destroys humanity's relationship with God by gossiping. That is, how lying is equivalent to murder. Uh, Rabbi Robbins also discusses how our capacity for good and our inclination to evil are reconciled in NDEs. So now that he's demonstrated that, what's he saying to her? That God doesn't want you to be this way because God is jealous for himself and wants you to remain ignorant. So he, the first thing he does is destroy her relationship with God by gossiping, mm. right? He gossips about God, with, to which Eve has no answer. That is why in Judaism, the worst sin you can do in this world is, guess what? Gossip. Mm. Because a gossip, gossip is the sin in this world which cannot be expiated in this world. There is no tshuva, no, there is no reconciliation. Because a person who gossips about another is a murderer. They kill three people. They murder themselves. They murder the one who they gossip about, and they kill the person they say it to. Well, that's implying that gossip is a lie. Yeah, because the purpose of the gossip is not about the truth. It is about using some element of the truth to destroy the person they're gossiping about. It is about power, not about truth. And and so the, the serpent gets power or revenge over God by turning God into this competitive uh, being that wants her to be limited. So she takes from the tree because she no longer accepts God's limitation and her eyes are open. She sees the difference between good and evil, right? That this is wonderful to eat. She takes it to Adam and it simply says that Adam eats. So the question then is, why is there no discussion about the prohibition? Well, so the rabbi's response is actually quite important because Adam says the prohibition on eating Eve is not from is not upon you but it is upon me the masculine side and because she brings him the fruit to eat and he sees how her eyes are opened he bonds with her he takes from the fruit which, by the way, is not an apple, because apples don't grow in the Middle East. 
or in the garden. It's um, it's either a pomegranate or a fig, mm-hmm. because both of those are symbols of life. Um, they look like a uterus with the eggs in them. Yes. So that the um, he takes of the fruit, he eats, and his eyes are opened, and suddenly they they put on clothes to cover their sexual organs. Why? Because they no longer are free of of the the guilt of what they've done, and they're embarrassed about their sexual desire with each other because the snake's gossip is done in order to break their relationship apart. The next part of the the text goes to God is looking for them at in the in the still of the, the day and he calls that you know finally finds Adam and he's you know where were you? Uh well I knew you were there so I was hiding hiding from the God says why were you hiding from me? And then the realization something he God knows already and yes. God says the fruit in the tree of the garden that I told you not to eat, did you eat from it? And instead of saying, yes, I did, Adam points to Eve and says... <laughs> <He> blames her. <laughs> yeah, no, no, he doesn't. He doesn't blame her. He says, if you know the text, he says, the woman you gave to me, she made me eat it. Oh, so, so he, blames he blames God. He's blaming God. He's blaming God. Wow. And then... So he's blaming both of them. And so he's, so he's blameless. And God turns to Eve and says, and what did you do? And she said, I didn't do it. He did it, pointing to the serpent. Hmm. And God turns to the serpent and there's a, there's a, a conversation that says, and what did you do? And the serpent replies, you gave them joy between each other. You didn't give it to me, and so if so, if I can't have the joy, neither can they. And so each of them are given a burden to bear. The, the serpent becomes a snake, and the woman, afraid of him, constantly crushes his head. I'll explain that in a moment. And then to the woman you shall, instead of giving birth in joy... You will give birth in pain. And to Adam, uh, instead of food being available to you in the garden, you will work by the sweat of your brow to bring, um, to bring food from the earth. And they're sent out of the garden into the world, which is basically mud. It says back in the beginning of Genesis chapter two, the earth was in in being, but there was no grass of the field or tree of the forest because there was no human to till the ground. And so there is this beginning of this, of the stages of the physical existence of Adam that I described before and the, the appearance of the serpent to, to show that you can't give somebody free will they have to take it. And in taking it, Adam and Eve enter into physicality rather than living in their constant direct connection to God, 
And then Adam and Eve become part of the incomplete world around them. So that now to understand the serpent, according to the Kabbalah of of a Spanish mystic named Jicotilla, who may have been in the circle of the mystics who studied with the man who wrote the Zohar down, that the serpent, the head of the serpent, was originally the footstool of God, and that from that footstool, the presence of the Holy One moved through the body of the serpent that coiled around physicality, whose tail went into the abyss, and it was through the serpent that physicality was birthed. And when the serpent turns its head to look into the garden to to accomplish what what I had talked about, the serpent disconnects from serving its purpose and and becomes one who creates this sense of abandonment by God of them, when in fact it's their abandonment of their relationship with God, which is part of the way humans become incomplete, enter the world, and for which they have free will. Uh, and then the rest of humanity lives with this this seeming paradox in us between the capacity for good, which is called the Yetzer Tov, the inclination for good, and the Yetzer Hara, the inclination for evil. And until we learn to unify them both, and one of the ways in which we learn to unify them first is with our NDEs, right? In the NDE, that seeming contradiction, the paradox, simply goes away. We're no longer afraid of it anymore. We know that that itself is an illusion. Mm. And so that's that's how we end up where we're at. Does that does that open a whole new path of thought? <laughs> yes, it does. Now, oftentimes, uh, at least some Christians would connect the serpent with either Satan or Lucifer. Does Jewish mysticism see a relationship there? No, no, because what Christianity and even Islam see as a devil, there is no devil in Judaism. Where does Satan appear in in Bible? You know, where's the first appearance? It's, uh, Job? It, it's in Job, which is near near the end of the unfolding of Bible. Um, and um, it's actually in the Greco-Roman period that the book seems to be put down. But you have to read the preamble to Job before you get into the text. What's the preamble? A God is talking to Satan as if they have this interesting relationship. Yes. And God is bragging to Satan, look at Look at the wonder of my, my, my child, Job. This is, he is completely righteous and blameless and his dedication, his service to me, he is wholehearted and pure. And Satan replies, of course, look at the beauty of his life, his wife, his children, 
his property, all his cattle. If you lay your hand upon him and you take it all away, like all the other humans who struggle for existence, he will curse you and want to die. Mm. And God says, no, he won't. He will remain pure and dedicated to me and not blame me. So Satan essentially says, okay, I dare you. Yeah, he tempts God. (laughs) So so God says, okay, I give you the, the permission to lay your hand upon Job and remove all of the things that we've talked about, but you must, but you cannot take his life. You can make him miserable, but you can't take his life. And eventually, everybody dies. His cattle disappeared, disappears, and ends up sitting on a dung heap by the side of the road in in mourning and loss and praying to God, show me your paths of righteousness so I understand why you have done this to me. Because I'm blameless. I don't deserve what happened. Mm. So remember, there are three friends some friends who come to him and in their own way, tell him, supposedly, yeah, tell him, look, all this happened to you because you did something horrible that so that you deserve what's happened. And each time Job says, no, I didn't do anything. And finally, at the end, he demands God's presence at the bar of justice so that He can plead his case against God. And at that moment, remember what happens? God appears. Yes. And and, and where were you when I what? (laughs) He says, where were you when I did this and did that? No, no. Before that, something else happened. Okay. See, I am blameless. You're wrong. God, why did you do this to me? And and God turns to the friends. And he says, what? Job is right. Job is blameless. Mm. He is pure. And Job says, see, I'm right. Why did you do this to me? And then God says, and where were you when I created this and I created that? How is it that you think you can get an answer to the question? This happened to you in service for me. And um, and in that moment, Satan becomes um, Job's Job's prosecutor at this celestial court, and is saying, because you cursed your life and prayed that you had never been born, you did what God told me you would never do, which is curse God and pray and wanted to be that you had never been born, and so you deserted God's promise to you. And so you have proved that that even the most righteous of people will give up their righteousness if they are challenged by God. Therefore, I do this little explanation. The word for challenge or test is the word nace. And the word for miracle is the same word. Hmm. So every challenge is a miracle that's waiting to happen. Remember I said this? And that every person who meets the challenge 
becomes the miracle. So this relates back to what is the miracle I was referring to that led us around back here. <laughs> Moses is standing on the edge of the sea and he sticks his, his staff into the ocean, into the, the earth below to call upon God and nothing happens. You know, the batteries weren't working, whatever it is. And, <laughs> and suddenly there is, there is this awareness that something's not working and the, and the, the Israelites on the shore turned to Moses and said, weren't there enough graves in Egypt? You had to bring us out here to die. Remember that? Yes. At that point in the commentaries, what is it that suddenly makes the, the presence of the east wind come up that separates the, the, uh, the, the sea of reeds? Well, the answer they're given is from a, a story that's embedded in the text later on. There is a man named Nachshon who grabs his wife and children and they run into the sea. And essentially, Moses asked, where are you going? And he said, if God needs our offering of ourselves to split the sea, then we will offer it. And he takes his family. They run into the sea until the ocean, the sea covers their noses and they begin to drown. And at that moment, the east wind comes up and the, the miracle happens. Uh-huh. What is it? It is the challenge that, that in order to become free from the, from the, the oppression, the tyranny, of Egypt and the Pharaoh that they had to be willing to die in order for the miracle to happen. They had an NDE mm. and suddenly the sea splits and for all of the people, according to the commentaries who pass through that ocean or that sea with the, the, the water, the walls of the water on either side, The whole nation has a collective NDE. So when they emerge on the opposite shore, they have all left behind that that life of slavery. Not completely, but a lot of it. And they stand on the shore and they're ready to move ahead. Wow. So it's not that God gives us a miracle. It's that we become the miracle that calls God's presence. Yes. Wow. So before before we end this, because we, <laughs> you have been so generous with your time, I'd like to talk about what happens to evil when the when the Jewish Messiah comes. The what happens to evil when the concept of a Messiah. Here, which is like, which is called a king, an earthly king, not a, not a transcendent king, that, that when, when all of the nations are unified into a common synergy or the word shalom, see the word shalom at its simplest level 
means peace. But, uh, but the word shalom comes from a word which means to take something which is unfinished and to bring it to completion or to wholeness. So the word shalom really means this sense of wholeness or more at more depth. It is the word for synergy. Remember the meaning of synergy? The whole is greater than the sum of its parts. Sum of its parts, yes. Which is a spiritual math versus the earthly match, math we learned as children, in which the whole is equal to the sum of its parts. The difference is that, is that the numerical value of the whole and the parts is the same. The, the synergy is that there is something in the quality of the wholeness which transcends the numerical quality of it all being added together. So it is this, this synergy in which all of the parts work together without disappearing. Understand? So that we're the parts, but we now work in synergy with each other. So that we're serving where we all should be serving with each other, but without our uniqueness disappearing. So the, so the goal of, of the move of this world toward wholeness is the, um, um, is the, um, um, is the principle of the, um, the incomplete world moving toward completion. Does it represent the loss of free will or the, or the completion of free will? No, it represents the completion of free will in which uh, the following happens. Um, free will is expressed in this way. Humans have feet and, and malachim, not angels, but messengers, have wings, not the wings that are drawn about the angel's presence, but is the capacity to fly, to lift up, not because you have wings, but because suddenly your presence spreads out and lifts you as if you had wings. Mm. The So all of us are malachim in training. <laughs> and so the first image of death that appears in the end of the book of Genesis is, is Jacob's dying. And what, what happens is that he blesses his, his 12 children. And it says then he lifted his feet off the floor, laid them on the bed, and there he died. It is that image of lifting our feet off the floor so that we're no longer connected to this world, which is the opposite of Moses. As Moses opposes the bush, what does God say to him, remember? Oh, take your shoes off. Right, because the place you stand is holy ground. It's, it's, it's sacred, yes. So what does that mean now in the scope of what we're learning? With your shoes on, you separate yourself from what actually what Paul Tillich calls the ground of being. It's a Jewish mystical image that when you take your shoes off, 
You can't run away in the desert. You have to stay where you are, regardless of what happens. And the consequence of that is a staggering realization that at that point, Moses is lifted off the ground, is enwrapped in the flames of the bush, goes through his own NDE, and then is put back into the earth, but now to serve serve God rather than to struggle with his own identity. Oh. Wow. And and so so the ground ceases to be relevant or necessary anymore because we've left physicality, we've left our bodies, we've left this earth, and we're being drawn upwards toward the source of our being, our our relationship to the Holy One who reminds us of the message that we were born to bring to life inward. In other words, Moses goes through everything he does up until that point in order that he stand in front of the bush. And in there is a profound statement about the moment of of spiritual awakening and transformation. Remember, Moses is a shepherd taking care of Jethro's flock. He's married to Zipporah. Um, I mean, and, um, no, I mean, you'll have it. And, no, Zipporah, and who's the symbol of the bird, spirit. And he's taking care of the flock, and he follows the lamb that runs away into the darkening desert. And, and, as the sun goes below the horizon, there is something that I experience called a catch light, uh, living in the desert. Do you know what a catch light is? No. Um, you see it either sailing out in the ocean. Which, oh, the little spark of green? Yeah. That's a flash. That you see just, just, yes, I've seen that. And how does it, what happens to you when you see it? Anything? Oh, it's, it's profound. It's so beautiful. Yeah. And, and so, so catch light happens and Moses turns to look at it and he sees a, a look at this site, a bush that burns and is not consumed. Mm. And in the surprise, instead of continuing with the lamb, what does he say? Remember, uh, says, I think I will turn aside yes, and see right. this wondrous sight. And thereon hangs the rest of the history of Judaism and the unfolding of both Christianity and Islam. If Moses had not turned aside because he was surprised, none of this would happen. Right. We, it was you his and I. Dis- would not be having this conversation. Conversation. It was his decision to turn. To turn aside. Yes. Which means that that sets a very clear quality about what the spiritual opportunity is. It is that we are surprised and we turn aside to see, quote unquote, this wondrous experience. So what is it that amongst all of us that 
of this community around the world, what is the surprise that happens? We die, but don't die. And we turn aside from our illness, our pain, our suffering, to enter into this transit to and back, out and back. And when we come back, each of us have unique messages that we each of us have to deliver, but there are messages held in common. And the first and most profound one is that you never need to ever be afraid again. And that's what the message of the NDE is as well. So. And that is, and that is the simple language that if all of us join together and share that the impact in the world's struggle with evil will simply go away because the fear of death will no longer animate us to struggle to be in the world. Rather, being in this world will be part of a purposeful joy that we know we don't complete in this world because nothing ever gets complete at this level of existence. It only gets completed as we move farther up. What does get completed at this level is our transit through this earthly life. On that note, (laughs) Rabbi Robbins, thank you so much. Um, I think we'll have probably four shows (laughs) out of this discussion, and we probably could have 20 more, but... um, I want to thank you so much for sharing your story and the story of um, mysticism uh, with us today. If uh, if listeners would like to hear today's program again or any of our past shows, just go to our website at nderadio.org. For more information about the work of IANS, check out their website, iands.org. And tune in next Monday, 11 a.m. Eastern, for more NDE Radio. This is Lee Whitting saying thanks for listening.